You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tanya Hester, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. It's not as easy as it sounds. I wanted to buy an electric car because it's better for the environment. But then my friend mentioned that often electricity in the United States is generated using fossil fuels. But I live in Illinois, which is 58% nuclear. But then there's the scourge of nuclear waste. Maybe it would be better for the environment if I just kept the old rickety car that I have and fixed it up. You see, the choices aren't always obvious. Whenever we here at Earn and Invest bring up issues of social or environmental justice, There's always a smattering of complaints about being too liberal, woke, or even socialist. But if you feel that way, I would encourage you to keep listening. After all, we are all activists of one kind or another, whether we want to be or not. Good, bad, or indifferent, what we do with our wallets matters. We are wallet activists. Tanya Hester, author of Work Optional, Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way, is best known for retiring from her career at the age of 38 after watching her dad get forced into early retirement by his disability, which she also shares. During her career, Tanya worked as a consultant on behalf of progressive political and issue campaigns, which is apparent in her writing, podcasting, and her activism for social and environmental justice. In her forthcoming book, Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change, Tanya focuses on illuminating the many ways our financial choices impact others as well as the planet. Tanya, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I wonder if you feel a sense of tension being involved in the financial independence community and your beliefs regarding social and environmental justice. Do they always play together well? Thanks for having me back. I love being here. You know, I think that folks tend not to give the financial independence space enough credit. I think there's a belief that if you want to retire early or just to have more options in your life, that that automatically comes from a place of selfishness. When I think, in fact, a lot of us want to have more options so that we can focus on activism, so that we can focus on caring for friends or family, so that we can do other things beyond just help feed corporate profits. And I think that there are a lot of folks also who just want to participate in capitalism as little as possible. I think more and more, the growing segment of the financial independence space is folks who um, care about others and care about the world and want to use the financial privilege that we have to 
create more opportunity for others or remove some of the barriers that make fire something that only the richest few have access to currently. I think a lot of the dialogue tends to be in the more selfish uh, direction, but I think that there are a lot of folks in this space who care a lot. That said, I don't need to talk about early retirement and financial independence forever. I think it's a finite topic. I think I've said the things I have to say on that. And to me, the point of doing it isn't to talk about it forever. It's to be able to then focus on the things that are really dear to my heart and soul. And I think that's what the new book represents. You know, it, it's a point on the side, but true that financial independence retire early, most of us, especially as you pass through the steps, it really becomes a stepping stone to something else. And I think what you're saying in your case, and what we're seeing a lot more in this community is that that stepping stone is to making a difference in the world and other people's lives. Yeah. And I, I think as you saw from reading the book, you know, I, I think framing it that way in terms of making a difference for others is not maybe my preferred way of talking about it. I think it's recognizing more the harm that we're all doing, not intentionally. Certainly, we we aren't all waking up every day and thinking, I'm going to trash the planet today and harm <laughs> some people and benefit from their exploitation. We're just living our lives. But there's so much misinformation out there, so many marketing lies, things that people tell us to feel good about things that we're doing that are, in fact, harmful. And I think a lot of folks are interested in learning about that so that we can undo some of that harm especially those of us who've had the most privilege and have benefited from it the most, we have the most responsibility to really own our actions and try to do better. I definitely want to delve into how we can more own our actions. But before we do, I want to discuss you a little bit. You recently posted a picture on Facebook of you lying on Joseph McCarthy's gravestone. I think you were in high school. (laughs) And you wrote, when the cool kids were off doing whatever it is cool people do in high school, I was making not-so-subtle activist art critiquing right-wing authoritarianism. Whatever spark of activism lives within you, feed the flame. Activist you is the best you. Hashtag wallet activism. Tell me when you became an activist. Obviously, this is something that's been on your mind for a long time. Yeah, it's funny. If you ask my dad, he will tell you that I was always an activist and that I was arguing with him about important causes when I was, you know, too early to have memory of of those conversations. Certainly, I think in high school was when I really started to own it, which I, I think a lot of folks can relate to. That's when you start having options to get involved. You know, my high school had an environmental club. I led that. I did a lot of journalism, which I do see as a form of activism, not in the sense of journalists being super biased, but in there being value and bringing truth to people, that being an important public service that leads often to changing the status quo. And so to me, this is something that I've always done when folks say, oh, this is a big pivot from financial independence. I'm like, no, financial independence was a tactic, not the guiding uh, philosophy of my life. And I think if you'd read my blog going back, um, I've never, you know, I, I did soft pedal it, I think for a while, but I've never hidden my ideology and where I stand on things. And so the activism runs deep. It really does. (laughs) Yeah. Joseph McCarthy, who folks know from McCarthyism, you know, rooting out the communists in the fifties, he was a hometown hero in Wisconsin. And so I had to go hop on that grave. (laughs) Yeah. I was about to say McCarthy was a hero until he wasn't. If you learn about him, you realize he had a precipitous fall after he eventually was called out. Oh yeah. Yeah. He did. He, He deserved to be taken down. So we often talk about 
retire early, Tanya. But before you retired, you actually chose a professional path that was very tied to this activism. What were you doing for a job before you retired? Yeah, I, after college, moved to DC where I had interned previously. And I worked a, a temp job for a while at National Public Radio reporting on politics. I really wanted to get that job permanently, but you know, everybody wants public radio jobs. And so that was not going to happen. Instead, I had an opportunity to work still in politics, but on the consulting side. So I was a consultant to both political candidates, political issue campaigns, where you try to pass maybe a ballot measure, something where you're asking people to vote on something. And then a lot of stuff that is politically aligned, but isn't something you vote on. So campaigns for nonprofit organizations, often big foundations, which helped inform some of my beliefs about big philanthropy and why it's problematic. But it was always about pushing causes that are aligned to progressive principles. So trying to create more opportunity for people, trying to bring down structural barriers to success, taking better care of the environment and the climate, things like that. And, you know, to me, how you earn your money is just as important as how you spend it. I think when I tell people about wallet activism, the first impulse people have is to say, oh, you're going to tell me how to shop better. Oh, yes, that, that's part of it. But our financial choices go well beyond that. It's how you earn a paycheck. It's how you conduct yourself in the workplace, what you fight for when you're at work, even if you have very little opportunity to do a job that speaks to your heart and soul. It, you know, you have to just go work for the corporate man. Uh, you can still conduct yourself at work in a way that helps to bring about positive status quo change. And so that's important. Where you save and invest your money is important. Where you choose to live is important. All these things are financial choices. And so for me, having a career that was something I felt really good about and that felt like it was contributing net good rather than net bad was a non-negotiable. And so to me, the book is really an extension of, of something that I've tried to practice in my life for a long time. Jumping to the book... What's the elevator pitch? What is exactly wallet activism? And as a second part of that question, what do you say to the person who says, you know what, these are systemic governmental problems. I hear you saying I need to make changes, but it's not going to move the needle as much as legislation per se. Let me be really clear. We need systemic change. We need to hold policymakers accountable. We need to hold corporations accountable. There is no way around that. However, I get really frustrated when I hear that conversation because people tend to frame it as, okay, either we can hold government and corporations accountable or we can change our individual choices. And that is not an either or question. It's an and question. We have to do both. People talk often about, well, there are 10 corporations responsible for 70% of global emissions. And that's more or less true. But we are those emissions. We are feeding <laughs> money. You know, when yeah. we talk about, oh, Exxon Mobil is doing this and that. Yeah, who do you think is paying their bills and paying their salaries? That's us. And so we have to work these big problems that we have from both sides, from both the policy and corporate side and from the individual choices side. So wallet activism is really that. It's taking ownership of the choices that we make, big and small, every day to focus on the harm that we create unintentionally, trying to reverse that harm, or even in some cases, promote good principles, but focusing on changing the status quo. And it's learning to see through the lies that we're surrounded by. So a lot of that is from marketers. A lot of that is often from people who seem to be on the same side as us, you know, listening to environmentalists without questioning, okay, 
why does your environmental organization not have a single staffer who isn't white? Uh, you know, why is there no listening to indigenous voices in your principles, despite indigenous people being the original stewards of the land that we live on? There are so many things that we can learn to question that ultimately will lead to better choices and not just choices that make us feel good or sort of let us sleep at night because we feel like we did something. It's instead focusing on the real impact. I feel like activism is such a broad term. In the book, you focused on two main issues, although you discuss many, but decarbonization is one and social injustice. How did you narrow down those topics for this book? And did you feel like it was limiting you at all in talking about what you hold important? No, I I don't think it's limiting because those encompass so much. Talking about social inequality, that really means just that the way we're treating people around the world is not okay and needs to change. It takes many forms. It takes the form of structural racism in the U.S. and in many Western societies, things that many of us have been fighting for with Black Lives Matter and and things like that. But it takes the form of exploitation of factory workers and farm workers around the world. All of that fundamentally boils down to inequality, a power imbalance, if you will. You know, Some people have more power, which really means they have more money. Others have less money, therefore less power. So how do we equalize that a little bit more so that the folks who are currently being exploited don't have to be forced into that situation anymore? So that's on the, the human side. On the planetary side, you know, yes, there are a lot of things that are important, like protecting endangered species, taking care of habitats that animals need to live in. But all of that is tied together. So if we focus on decarbonizing, which really means getting away from fossil fuels, that means in our cars, in our homes, in our electricity generation, in our transit systems, in our manufacturing, all of that will feed everything else. So the reason why we're seeing so many species go extinct is because of the warming climate and ocean acidification and shrinking their habitats to burn those trees to graze livestock or to burn the trees for biomass energy. It's all connected. And so if we focus on on those two things of doing what we can to reduce inequality and at the same time decarbonizing, we will solve so many of the issues that we're facing and that people care about. These are big issues. And as you talk about fossil fuels, I was thinking about my introduction and my decision about buying a new car and should it be electric or shouldn't it be electric? You know, it always begs the question, is there such thing as an easy button? Because all of us want that, right? People want to be told, here is what you can do to be on the right side of these issues. And if someone will just tell me, I'll do them. Is it not that easy? It's not that easy for the most part. And I think wanting an easy button, I get it. That's completely logical. But a lot of the choices that we make are so multifactorial that saying, okay, this is clearly the right choice all the time is generally not going to happen. That said, on the car question, in general, the thing you already own is the greenest thing. You know, that is the most sustainable thing. Uh, When people say, well, I have this old refrigerator and it eats a lot of power. I'd love to have a more efficient one. Well, okay. But then you've got to overcome the cost of disposing of the existing one, which probably includes refrigerants like Freon that we used to use that have to be disposed of, or they're going to warm the climate. You've got to weigh the cost of manufacturing a whole new refrigerator, which includes a huge number of natural resources, rare earth metals, things that have to be smelted through a coal burning process. Then that thing has to be transported probably across an ocean. You've got this huge energy and resource debt before you even plug that new fridge in. 
that you're actually in most cases better off keeping the old one, particularly because if you have an older appliance, those are made so much better than a refrigerator you'd buy today, which is meant to die in 10 years or less. And so with the car, my argument is if you must buy a new car, it's far better to buy electric because you're pushing demand for electric, which is source agnostic. Electricity, as you said, can come from anything. In a lot of the U.S., it comes from coal. But in some states, like in California, we have no coal. We do have natural gas, which is still a fossil fuel. That's not great, but it's better than coal. You have a lot of nuclear. You know, nuclear waste storage is not as big an issue as people make it out to be. The U.N. is really clear in all their IPCC reports, the the pan, the climate change reports that nuclear has to be a part of a decarbonized future. There's no way around that. And we need to stop acting like it's super controversial and just focus on how to do it safely. But getting a new electric car is going to get us closer to decarbonizing than buying another gas car or even a hybrid car, which still runs on gas and also is a a really energy intensive manufacturing process too. So I think anytime anyone's looking at something new, if you've already got something that works, Nine times out of 10, that's going to be your best option. But then if you must get something new, then you can start to get into that greater complexity. Yeah, I want to emphasize that because you say it multiple times in the book, using or fixing what you already have is often a really great solution. The other point that you remind me of is this idea that there's either good or bad is not really true. There are levels of good and bad. And one thing I see you do in the book often is you structure your answers. Like this is good for this situation, but if you can't do that, then the next best is X and then Y and then Z. And sometimes we forget that it's not an all or nothing proposition. Absolutely. You know, I think that there has been a lot of all or nothing thinking in both sides of the activism space, the environmental side and the the social side, the inequality focused side. And I think a lot of that's been counterproductive. You know, folks have said, well, shopping at Walmart is bad. Shopping on with Amazon is bad. And like, are those great companies? No, they're they're clearly not. But we don't need to be making big elitist arguments that only people who can afford to never shop at Walmart and Amazon are welcome in the activist space. That's not true. So instead, it's not, okay, never shop at Amazon or you're a bad person. It's how do we do that more responsibly? How do we do that in a way that's less harmful to the planet and to the warehouse workers that feeds less demand for the kind of cheap junk that leads to a lot of pollution and trash generation. All of those things are possible. And so I think it's really important to think of everything as a spectrum. And it's not about, are you doing this perfectly or not? It's what are some ways I can improve today or this year? And then building on that over time to the extent that you're able, you know, folks with disabilities are often blamed for a lot of things because you'll see food packaged in stores where like an apple is cut up and wrapped in plastic. And you'll see someone post that picture and say, oh, this is so terrible. Who is this for? Who buys this? The answer is disabled people with limited dexterity or people who can't safely handle a knife. Like that's an important thing. And so if that's you, there's no shame in meeting the needs that you have. Instead, focus on the areas where you can make a difference. And that's absolutely possible for all of us. Yeah, as you're saying, you know, people's financial values are different. It can some be something that we're not always clear on. You talk about writing a financial value statement. What exactly is that and how do people use it? Yeah, you know, I think we especially I will say I'll come back to financial independence here because in the financial independence conversation, there's often this discussion of only spend in ways that are aligned to your values. But I think most people are actually misusing that term when they say that. What they really mean when they say that is 
spend according to what you value. So they're saying, don't buy gifts for people just because that's expected if that's not important to you. Don't buy new clothes to look a certain way in your job if that's not important to you. Spend on the things that are important to you. And that's totally good and solid advice, but that's not actually reflecting values. And so I recommend folks actually take the time to take a big step back from life and to look at it's some of the causes you care about. So if racial justice is the most important thing to you and shrinking the racial wealth gap, you're going to make different choices than someone who is wholly focused on the climate, for example. And so knowing what issues you care most about is really important. But beyond that, even looking at your core values, what are the things that matter to you? Is it honesty and integrity? Is it fairness? Is it self-sufficiency? You know, you can sort of go down an infinite list of these things. But knowing those things helps you simplify your financial choices. And that's a big part of the value to me. I use the example in both work optional and wallet activism because I think it's apt in both of if you ask a vegetarian if they want a burger, they don't have to expend any mental energy to say, nope, I don't eat burgers. That's that's not something I do. And so to the extent that we can automate some of those decisions for ourselves of, nope, I don't spend on this. Okay, I do spend on this, but only when I can be really thoughtful about it and really look at all the factors. And these are the things that I spend on that I don't worry about because they align to my values. Like for me, a lot of that is buying books. I buy books by everyone I want to support, by friends, by authors whose work I think is really great, people where I just want their book to do really well so that we see more books like that coming out. I try to do that with a lot of social and environmental justice topics. That's something I don't stress about because I've made my piece that that aligns to my values. And so that example is going to look different for everyone. Everyone will have their own categories. But part of it is it's so easy to feel overwhelmed with a lot of these things that we're talking about in wallet activism. We're thinking, okay, where am I allowed to shop? What am I allowed to buy? How am I allowed to earn a living? I don't want people stressing out over every decision every day. (laughs) I want you to be able to kind of create a system for yourself. But I really think that has to start with values. It can't start from anything else or it's one, not going to be true to who you are. And two, it's unlikely to be impactful. As I hear you talking about this, you know, I think about your financial values, but then the next step is with your financial values, you decide what to spend money on and why. And part of that is assessing those companies or investments that you're going to put your money into. That's also something that we have a lot of trouble with. I I can't tell you how many times I've thought about going to X store and someone says, oh yeah, but did you hear about the thing that their CEO did? You specifically use the term good guy and bad guy companies. Talk a little bit about how you differentiate between them. I know you have a series of questions that you ask that helps you sort out in your mind where to put your money and where not to. I mean, the reality is that we're all going to have to spend some money in ways that don't feel great. You know, you need to climate control the place where you live. You need to eat. You know, sometimes when you're traveling, you only have fast food options. You might not love the way that all those companies treat their workers, for example, or the things that they lobby for. I first recommend when thinking about good and bad guy companies, and I purposely use the term guys, which is not gender neutral because... 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are men. Uh, And so I think fundamentally, it's a lot of men making these decisions about corporate practices. But I use the Chick-fil-A example in the book too, where a lot of folks know Chick-fil-A has been really active in funding anti-LGBTQ plus activities for a lot of years. They've they've said in the last few that they're no longer funding that stuff. You know, I, I still think that they have corporate values that don't reflect the values of a lot of folks who might enjoy their food. My 
goal is for you to think first about the big decisions. So if you go get a Chick-fil-A sandwich twice a year, three times a year, you know, rarely, you're giving them what, maybe 15 or 20 bucks over the course of a year. How big a deal is that? You know, I I liken it to thinking about political contributions. If the amount of money you're going to spend somewhere is an amount of money that you would feel really gross going to a politician whose views you find abhorrent, that to me is a great analogy to use. So if I go spend 15 or $20 at Chick-fil-A in a year, am I okay with 15 or $20 going to Mitch McConnell? I don't love it, but it's only 15 or 20 bucks, you know, versus you had to pick Mitch McConnell, didn't you? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Versus something like, you know, Amazon or Target or wherever someone might spend a lot of money, you tally that up. And for most folks, it's a, it's a fair bit. And we might be talking about thousands or even for some folks, tens of thousands of dollars a year. Are you okay with that amount of money going to a politician you strongly disagree with? I think then it becomes easier to make that calculus. And so that's where coming back to your values and saying, well, this this represents something I don't agree with or I strongly disagree with, but let's scale it. Let's look at how big a deal is it to spend a little bit or a lot. Obviously, the bigger decisions have more impact. So that's where where I recommend folks focus. But you know, the to the extent that you're able to do business with companies that treat their workers fairly, that try not to pollute more than necessary. You know, the the gold standard that's often held up is Patagonia. They do a lot of things that are really good. They've had some supply chain issues. They've been tied to forced labor in Xinjiang province in China with the Muslim Uyghurs who are being kept and forced to work by the Chinese government. Obviously, that is a problem, but they've also owned up to it in a way that I think other companies could really learn from. But so taking all that aside, most people can't afford to shop at Patagonia and they don't have everything you need to buy in your life. And so it's looking to get as close to that sort of standard as you can of looking for folks who aren't trying to just pump out a lot of garbage into the world, who are taking ownership of their supply chain and also the waste cycle so that when their products wear out, that they have a plan for what's going to happen other than just going into the landfill or the ocean, that they're they're focused on their overall environmental footprint. I mean, all of those things to the extent you're able to get closer to that good guy level the better. And and that's that's all. It's just about trying to improve with each decision we make. And I think learning to see through a lot of the lies really helps with that because you start to see, oh, when Glad sandwich bags are offering this new bag that's 50% plant material, that seems good. Oh, but wait, it's still fundamentally single-use plastic. And it's still them trying to sell me on something so that I feel good about buying more disposable plastic. Once you start to change your lens on that, it's easy to see through that and to say, okay, do I really need that? Maybe some folks do, but a lot of folks probably don't. We're talking with Tanya Hester, author of Work Optional Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way. She is best known for retiring from her career at the age of 38. Her newest book is Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately 
that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, everybody. This is not another advertisement. I just wanted to take this moment to talk to you directly. If you have taken a look recently at your podcast player, whether it is Apple or what have you, you might notice that by the Earn and Invest podcast, there is a name. That's right. I go by Doc G for social media, but now that I'm going to be publishing a book in August of 2022, I'm going to be merging my doctor community with my personal finance and podcasting community. And to do so, I'm going to start using my real name. So let me reintroduce myself to you. I am not only Doc G, but Jordan Grummet, an internal medicine physician, hospice practitioner, medical writer, and blogger for many, many years, and of course, the podcaster that you've hopefully come to know and love. So you might be seeing my name around a little bit more. That's right. It is Jordan Grummet. Uh, You can still call me Doc. You can still call me Doc G, or I'm also Jordan There is a story behind why I decided to go anonymous with Doc G. Maybe we'll discuss it on an episode in the future. Let me know if that is a story that interests you. But otherwise, I think it is time to be anonymous no longer. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tanya about wallet activism. Let's get back to it. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking with Tanya Hester. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change. Tanya, there are a bunch of points in the book that surprised me, a bunch of things that when I thought deeper made a lot of sense. But if you had asked me about them before I read the book, I would have never realized Let's talk about a few of them. The first is this idea of made in China. If you talk to a lot of people in the United States, they see made in China on an article of clothing or something, and they kind of cringe, like, oh, maybe we should be buying something in the US. You say there's another way to look at this. Yeah, it's interesting because I see that coming actually from both sides. You've got a lot of more conservative folks saying made in China is a reflection of 
outsourcing American jobs and we need to bring those jobs back. You see folks on the, the left talking about the authoritarian regime in China and how we don't want to support that. And also, obviously, the environmental impact of shipping things across an ocean and exploiting workers and factories. And all of that's true. So this is not to say it isn't and we should all rush out to buy made in China things. But something that I think is often left out of the conversation is that China used to be a country with a huge population who lived mostly in poverty, who couldn't afford the necessities of life, who had really rough lives, we'll just say. However, with the rise of manufacturing in China, they have lifted about a billion of their folks out of poverty. And China is now considered a middle-income country. And so we'll often see people talking about how important it is uh, to address poverty and then at the same time decry made in China when, in fact, Chinese manufacturing has been perhaps the greatest force in history in lifting huge numbers of people out of poverty in a short time. And I think that that needs to be part of the conversation. And so when we say made in China... It shouldn't be good or bad. It's, okay, let's look at this in more detail. You know, there is a lot of stuff that's being manufactured really to meet American demand that's very poorly made, that's cheap quality, that won't last long, that will go straight to the landfill. But there's also really high quality stuff that's being made. You know, everybody walking around with an iPhone or Android in your pocket, that was made in China. And so this it's a complicated issue. And it's worth more discussion and more thought before just making that flippant remark of, oh, made in China is bad. You know, it, it has bad sides. But it also has good sides. To steal a saying, there's some uncomfortable truths there. And sometimes it's just being aware of all sides of the issue and then deciding, I guess, based on your personal values, which holds more water. Yeah. Or maybe it's, it's deciding, okay, I'm not going to buy the cheapest thing that I can find. You know, I need this widget. I'm not going to go on Amazon and find the cheapest one. I'm going to try to be more thoughtful, try to buy something higher quality. I think often folks leave out the, the possibility of finding something secondhand or borrowing it from a neighbor or sharing it with a neighbor. Um, but if you truly need something new, you know, being more thoughtful so that you're saying, okay, I'm going to look for the higher uh, manufacturing standards or the better environmental standards or buy from a company that's made a pledge to pay a living wage. There are different ways that you can address it without having to say, okay, everything from China is bad. Another thing that caught my eye as was reading the book is talking about the recycling myth. And if you live in an area, anything like mine, we happen to have the blue recycling garbage versus the regular gray garbages. And those fill up quickly. It certainly makes you feel like you're having an impact or making a difference. That's not 100% true. And, and interestingly enough, it's almost beside the fact. Tell us about the recycling myth. Yeah, and I, I want to be careful here because it's easy for me to get into this topic and for folks to say, oh, so there's no point in recycling. And that's absolutely not my point. It's still important to recycle. But I believe that if we actually understand how the system works, we'll make different purchasing decisions on the front end. So plastic recycling, that is, that is the thing that people attempt to recycle the most. However, Plastic is rarely recycled when you throw it in the bin. And plastic as a material can only actually be downcycled. So if you buy plastic water bottles and you put them in the recycling bin thinking, okay, this will become new plastic water bottles, that's not going to happen. That plastic at best will become those flimsy, throwaway, terrible, rip in your hands while you're going to the parking lot grocery bags. 
that's generally the, the best use for most recycled plastic. Some will go into things like asphalt on roadways, but a lot of it just ends up going to the landfill or ends up in the ocean. When we talk about, oh, plastic in the ocean, it's such a problem. Why are people dumping all this stuff? People don't realize most of the plastic that the US, for example, is putting in the ocean is it's just getting there by being blown there. Or it even often comes from people who put it in the recycle bin in the first place, thinking they were doing the right thing. But the idea of plastic recycling was developed by the plastic manufacturing industry. So it was the industry who said, okay, we've done all this research. People don't like the idea of buying a lot of plastic, but if we can convince them that their plastic is being recycled, now suddenly they feel a whole lot better about it. Now they're okay with buying as much plastic as possible. And so that's one of those big lies that we're told of, look, here's the right thing to do, recycle plastic. But it actually on the back end then makes us do the wrong thing, which is buy more plastic. And I think if more people know that, they'll make different choices. If you know, okay, this plastic bin that I'm buying my grocery item in is unlikely to be recycled, I think you'll seek out the carton of it and try to buy it packaged in paper instead, or maybe you don't need it at all. And so that's that's just one of those examples that I think it's important to understand the intent behind it, that it's ultimately a marketing ploy, not a reality. And just to understand with other things, glass, uh, steel cans, what sometimes folks will call tin cans, aluminum cans, those things are much more recyclable, but it's still important to understand that recycling is an energy intensive process. And in the case of things like paper, they have to use fairly toxic chemicals in order to wash the ink off the paper. So that can be harmful to workers. We need to understand that recycling is not zero cost regardless of the material, unless you're literally doing something old school, like having milk bottles dropped off by the milkman, and then they just wash them and refill them. You know, if you can get in on something like that, that's great. But otherwise, just understanding that recycling, it's not sort of like a free get out of jail uh, token. It's still something with an environmental and social cost. You talk about the plastics industry pushing this idea of recycling is the consumer's responsibility. And I think in the book, you mentioned that iconic TV commercial with the supposed indigenous person who was not actually played by an indigenous actor with the teardrop in his eye as he was seeing the trash on the roadside. That was a created belief that was foisted upon us, I believe, in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. In fact, even a little bit earlier than that, because littering became a huge issue in tandem with the rise in disposable packaging. So I mentioned you know, the milkman and the glass milk bottles. That was the way it was for things that you needed to buy for a long time. You used recyclable, well, I mean, really reusable packaging, but the idea of something disposable is really a pretty recent phenomenon. And so the folks who pushed this idea of littering is something that people do and only people can change this, and this is individuals' fault, the people pushing that message were the people manufacturing the litter. And that's not to say that littering is okay. We should all do it. It's no problem. But we need to take a more critical eye and say, who is behind this message? Why are they giving it to us? Why are they trying to make me feel that this is my fault? Instead of saying, hey, we need to do a better job of owning what we put out into the world and owning the whole life cycle of it to ensure it doesn't turn into litter. And that's completely absent. And that's a very common corporate tactic to make us as individuals feel bad for, in essence, corporate malfeasance, you know, bad, unethical corporate decisions that then get pawned off on us to blame. So this is where I really understand when folks say, well, we can't solve it as individuals. And that's true. We can't solve all these problems solely, but we have a large role to play. So it's about both sides, making sure that we're holding the corporations accountable and questioning their motives, but also changing our own ways. 
One of the things I also struggled with as I read your book is as someone who was interested in financial independence, who has an interest in frugality, a lot of times we pride ourselves on buying things for as cheap as possible. And one of the questions you say in the book to ask yourself is, is this too cheap? Explain why that's important. Yeah, I try to give folks a set of guiding questions to ask yourself before making any financial decision or before making a certain category of decision so that you know your answer moving forward. And as you said, one of them is, is it too cheap? Because I think we we tend to think often just about the deal that we are getting or how much can I save if I don't spend X amount and instead I spend a quarter of that. But we don't look at what's behind cheapness. And what's usually behind cheapness is bad environmental practice and exploitation. And we know that because you can just think about something. Like I, I saw a pair of headphones on Amazon when I was researching the book that were $10. And you think about that. So headphones, a pair of headphones includes circuitry. It includes rare earth metals in small quantities in that circuitry. It includes things like copper that have to be smelted after they're mined. It includes plastic on the outside. Well, now because all that's together, it's going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible to recycle because it's all combined. It was made in a factory across an ocean where if the whole thing only costs $10 and that includes the profit, the warehousing, the transoceanic shipping, and the manufacturing, you know that the people who made it could have earned at most some pennies. And you look at all of that and that's a high cost. That's I'm getting a deal because someone else was exploited. And we don't usually think of cheapness as representing that. But once you sort of shift your thinking and you see that anything very cheap, especially if it's much cheaper than comparable products, absolutely it included exploitation and bad environmental practices. And so that's something that I just would encourage folks to think more about. It's not to say you need to buy the most expensive thing all the time. But just before you buy something really cheap that you're thinking about, why is this so cheap? What does that tell me about it? It's not to say expensive means quality or expensive means no one was exploited, but you're more likely to get at least a little bit more information. If something's more costly, you can investigate that company's supply chain, for example. It's almost impossible to do that with stuff that's very low cost. That's really the mindset shift that I'd love to see a lot more folks make. And if if the idea of spending a whole bunch more money on the things you want really upsets you, you still have other options. Secondhand is great. Not buying things is great. We have more choices than we think. It's not just buy the cheap thing or buy an expensive thing. As I'm listening to you and you're talking about how cheap things often are shipped from countries where the cost of making them are low cost and the carbon footprint that creates by shipping and getting them to the United States... You know, my mind jumps to something we probably won't spend a lot of time talking about, but which you do in the book, which is talking about what we eat and organic products, et cetera. And another one of your points, which I really took home, was we talk often about organic versus non-organic, but something we should consider is how close and locally grown something is to our physical location. Because ultimately, if you're talking about global impact, it may make more sense for you to buy something on a farm that you know was created down the road from you where the cost of getting it to your market was almost nothing from an environmental perspective as opposed to something that is grown in another country. Yeah, and this is something that I think a lot of folks don't necessarily want to hear. I know there are the sides of the side of the folks who are enthusiastic meat eaters who don't want to think about the impact that comes with that and rest assured I'm not trying to make everybody into a vegan. 
I think that you should have personal choice in what you eat, but we can also shift quantities. So it doesn't mean you need to eat meat every day or that it always needs to be beef or uh, lamb that has an especially large impact on climate. But we've actually found, not not myself personally, um, but researchers have found that a vegan diet that is heavily reliant on things like fresh berries, uh, which have to be flown in for much of the year because they're too perishable to be shipped on a container or by a train car or things like coconut that's largely grown in the global South and has to travel a long way, that that diet is actually much heavier in environmental impact than a diet that's more locally focused, but includes things like chicken, fish, eggs, locally produced dairy. And so the idea that vegan is good, meat eating is bad, it's, it's really not the case. It's really the details. And to the organic versus inorganic point, Something that I think a lot of folks also don't want to think about who really promote organics is that a lot of organic food actually has a much higher environmental impact than non-organic food. And that's because it's slower to grow. It has to um, be in the ground longer. It takes more space to grow the same amount because it's not given that huge artificial fertilizer boost. Um, And things like grass-fed beef, grass-fed beef has a much higher set of environmental impacts than does traditionally feedlotted beef. Now, you you may still have reason to do that. Maybe you find the feedlot process really inhumane and you can't be okay with that. That's valid and that's worth considering. But it's just to make the point that things that are organic or that seem like the more, you know, quote unquote, green approach aren't necessarily so. And so it's important to look into the details. I do still recommend organics for animal products for a variety of reasons. But with produce, with other things, it's worth looking at the details of them. And we know that the pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, some of those are the worst chemicals that we as as a species are creating and putting into the environment. And so things, for example, that have glyphosate, often known as Roundup on them, I recommend folks go organic for those because they have such a bad impact on the ecosystem. But if you're just looking at other produce items, you know, there's there's really no benefit to you health-wise to go organic, and there's also not an environmental benefit. I want to move the conversation a little more to the social justice side. I was looking through Instagram this morning, and you posted a quote on a note card from Viola Davis, which I believe is at the front of your book. I quote, if you're dedicated to change, let it cost you something. And I've I've actually been struggling with this idea as I read your book. The dichotomy is between personal gain versus activism. And I know in my own life, I face that too, especially with social justice issues. And it certainly has been magnified during the pandemic. I'll give you an example. My son has had issues with test taking. And I knew that he wasn't getting as high level of education this last year because he was getting virtual schooling and they were trying to get the systems up, et cetera. And he goes to a very racially mixed school. We live in a very racially mixed area. And, you know, so I said, hmm, maybe we should start getting you tutoring for SATs and ACTs. It'll be a good way to supplement the fact that you're not getting what you need from the school system this year. And we know that you have issues with test taking. So this will be a good chance for you to kind of buff up and prepare for something that may not be easy for you. And as I'm reading your book, I, you know, I feel that kind of, I want to give the best to my children and provide for them. On the other hand, I realize that that's a perfect example of something that you sometimes call opportunity hoarding, right? So 
there are opportunities I have because of the privilege I either was born into or because of the situation I find myself in that other people don't have. And so it's hard to weigh personal gain for me or my family versus realizing that if you want to work on some of the inequality in society, at some point, people who have the means have to forego some of these extra opportunities they have. And so that's, yeah, I don't know if I made that into a question, but I guess the real question is how do we weigh personal gain versus good for everybody? How do we kind of follow Viola Davis's quote of if we're really dedicated to change, how do we know when it's okay for it to feel painful? Yeah, I, I feel her quote in such a deep way because I, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that if if we care about things enough to want to change the status quo, it's a little bit ridiculous to think that that change should be free. You know what I mean? It, of course, it should cost something and it should cost those of us who've benefited the most from the system. I think it should cost us the most. That said, let's let's move out of the education context because I know that that's really emotionally loaded and use an example that I think everybody can relate to, which is healthcare. And so in the healthcare context, it's something that's not political at all in most countries in the world. But in the U.S., we have politicized the hell out of healthcare and we've decided that it's not a right. It's something that only certain folks are entitled to, uh, which tends to, in most tellings of it, look a lot like white upper class folks. But the argument usually goes that, well, I don't want universal health care because why should I have to pay for someone else? Well, guess what? The reality is that you are already paying for them. We're paying, and, and you're a doctor. You know this really well, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But we have lots of folks who aren't able to access normal preventive healthcare. So as a result, their problems get worse, which also means much more expensive to treat. They then show up at emergency rooms in a crisis, and that's the most expensive way to treat something. Then they can't afford to pay that bill because the bills you get from a hospital when you're uninsured are astronomical. They're many, many times more than an insured person's insurance plan actually pays. And so then they default on those bills. Well, guess where those costs go? They go to all of us. So we're all paying for that healthcare. And in fact, we're paying much more for worse outcomes because we're letting so many folks skip the preventive care, not because they want to, but because they can't afford it and get to this level of emergency treatment, which I think we're seeing in a big way right now in the COVID pandemic, all the, all the stuff that's going to emergency level when we could have done the preventive thing. And some of that is personal choice. Some of that is government policy. But when you look at it that way and you say, we're already paying. And in fact, if we did this thing that was better for everyone, it would be better for me too, because my healthcare would get cheaper our outcomes would get better. The system would be less overloaded by people in a crisis state, and we'd all benefit from that. I think you can then apply that principle to just about anything. So thinking about education, we have this real perceived need among a certain class of folks in the US who feel that they have to keep their kids where they are or push them higher. And the question we, we don't stop to ask enough is, you know, when you say, well, I, I want to do everything I can to help my kid get ahead, ahead of whom, you know, and, and why? And why do we think it's so essential for my child to be ahead of everybody else? And why don't we question what that means and what that reflects, where if we focused instead on creating a more just society and thinking about what that looked like and what that would mean for everyone, if we could raise everyone's standard of living, I don't think we'd have that same need to feel like we have to push certain kids ahead. Because sort of the basic level would feel much more humane and much more dignified. It's because we have this stark inequality that the thought of sliding down the ladder is so terrifying to people. Uh, but that has to start somewhere. And I do think 
that you know, I didn't coin the term opportunity hoarding. That came from Richard Reeves with the Brookings Institution, who wrote an excellent book about the topic that I highly recommend. Um, but a lot of us benefit from that opportunity hoarding. And then we do that as we we move forward. I know I didn't go to private school for a day of my education. I was public school all the way. But when we moved, when I was a kid, we always moved into the very best school district. And I know that I benefited from that. And where I am today is a reflection of that. Looking back, I don't know what I would have advised my parents to do exactly, but I think looking out for yourself and coming to recognize the cost that that has to other students or to other people, it's a good way to shift your mindset so that we look at what's the outcome we actually want here. Is that I want my kid to get ahead at the expense of others or do I want everyone to do better? Uh, I think if we focus on the greater good, we ourselves will actually do better too. And that's an important thing to remember. Yeah, I feel like we've built up this culture of bootstrapping, right? We t- we say, well, it's it's up to you. You have to boot your strap, bootstrap yourself into success, and that kind of allays our anxieties about about the inequalities that are undoubtedly there. Yeah, I think as I think about the conversation and about the book in general, I bet a lot of people feel overwhelmed. So I'm wondering, as someone who's coming to you. Maybe they've read through your book and still are kind of like, where do I start? Are there a couple easy things to begin with to kind of dip your toe in if you really want to embrace wallet activism and and have more of an impact? Yeah, I really recommend that folks start with that financial value statement that we write early in the book to help kind of frame your thoughts. And I think oftentimes it's hard to, if someone says, what are your values? <laughs> it's sort of like, <laughs> You know, how do we solve world hunger? It feels like a really big and hard to answer question. But I think after reading through the whole book, then you might go back and say, okay, after reading all this stuff, that here are the things that stood out to me. Here are the things I realized that I'm doing that I now see are more harmful than I knew. And you can go then and, and do that value statement in a more informed way or with a greater awareness of the things that, that really stuck out to you as the most unjust. And then let that value statement guide you. So if you have seen that, okay, let, you know, we talked earlier about the racial wealth gap very briefly. We know that in the US in particular, but this is true across most Western global North countries, white folks earn by far the most money and they have by far the greatest net worth, you know, inherited wealth, um, accumulated wealth. It's, it comes from all these different sources. And we know that black folks in particular have about 10%, the, the average net worth of white folks, same ages and educational levels. And if that's something that you really care about, then you can make a point of when you buy your books that instead of buying from Amazon, you seek out black owned bookstores or bookstores owned by indigenous people, other people of color. You can start to make different decisions based on maybe just one issue that you care most about. Or if it's for you, climate, you know, making a point of, okay, our car needs to be replaced. Well, does it really? Maybe you could not replace that car. Maybe you could experiment going without a car and using ride shares, not necessarily the Lyft and Uber variety, but more like um, car sharing that some places offer where you go actually pick up a car and drive yourself, or it might be working to just drive less or to take public transit more and taxis and Ubers less. There are all kinds of different things that are just an easy starting point. And I really think of this as sort of like the gateway drug. You know, the, Once you get started and you start saying, hey, that actually isn't so hard. And I don't feel like my life is worse because I've made some different choices. Then it becomes easy to make more. But I do, abs- and I say this early in the book, no one will be able to do everything. 
in the book. Absolutely no one, even people with all kinds of disposable income and lots and lots of free time. So the goal isn't to say, here's a really long list of homework assignments. It's to say, here are some things that you can start thinking about and start reassessing the choices in your life. Maybe the things you start with are things I don't mention in the book at all, but that you start to see differently once you've you've read it. And so start somewhere, you know, start with one small thing or two small things and build on that. That's really, I think, the best way to go about it because the goal isn't for this to feel like a huge sacrifice. You know, the goal is just for us to start assessing our choices differently and to act accordingly. And, and I think once you understand the principles behind something, it becomes much easier to make a different choice than if it's just someone saying, hey, don't eat at McDonald's, don't shop at Walmart. You know, that's not helpful. Let's understand the reasoning behind some of those things. And then, yeah, it, it feels like a non-sacrifice, I think, once you sort of align your values to your choices. I will note that in the first few chapters of your book, there is a template for the financial value statement as well as at the end, there's a list of really helpful resources and third-party certifications. Tanya, I've been really excited to have this conversation with you. The book, Wallet Activism, is it available for pre-order now? And if so, how can people get it? Yes, it is available for pre-order now from all of the book places. I'm really encouraging folks to buy it from your local independent bookshop if you can, rather than one of the big guys. And if that's not an option for you, bookshop.org is a nice resource that helps to provide funding to local independent bookstores, which have really taken a hit during the pandemic. If you need to buy it from you know, the everything store or somewhere else, I'd just ask if you could leave a review because that algorithm is really important. And certainly it will be available at libraries too. So it's great to request it from your library or you can get the ebook. I'll be recording the audiobook in a couple of weeks. It comes out November 16th, but pre-orders before then, they, they always help authors and help books. So if you can do that, I really appreciate it. Well, the book is Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, I'd like to thank Tanya Hester. That's a wrap. Very cool. Great. So I do do sometimes a little bit of after show, but it's actually a perfect chance for you to say, is there anything that you wish we talked about in the book or anything that you'd want out there that didn't quite make it into the interview? No, you had great questions. I think we we touched on a lot of awesome stuff. I'm stoked about this interview. Yeah, I, I am too. And I, I knew that, I mean admittedly, I knew people like you are pretty easy because I can throw some general questions out and then you'll <laughs> narrow them into really, really good, good content. But I, but I did want to make sure that I did justice because like I said, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff there and I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to jump in and out. As I finished, I'm like, I, I wish we maybe did a little more with social justice, but you were really great at throwing that into the answers, even when I was asking some of the more kind of economic questions. Um, yeah, it, it, these are, they're hard issues, but, uh, I definitely, uh, you, you, my wife has been kind of laughing at me because I keep on bringing things up. I've read in the book. I'm like, well, did you think about this? <laughs> and she's like, you've been reading that book too much, but it, it, it's good. Cause, um, yeah, definitely made me think. And I, I, I definitely, I think it's, um, a great addition to people interested in financial independence too. Because I think exactly what you said in the beginning is a lot of people kind of graduate after, okay, I've kind of figured out my finances, 
Like, what has meaning to me now? What what can I do to impact the world? What can I or not do, for that matter? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, how, how can I how can I continue to kind of grow? And I think that that's part of that next step. Yeah, I think there are, you know, a select few who are happy talking about index funds and Bitcoin forever. And I think then there's all the rest of us who are like, yeah, do you talk about like how you clean your house like forever or like how you your philosophy on driving your car? Like, no, these are just background things. You figure it out. And then the goal is to not waste that brain power. So, yes, I think I think there are a lot of great conversations happening. And I mean, honestly, I've I've tuned out so many of the fire folk. They're all pitching their like garbage gum road stuff. Um, and we've been kind of overrun with scammers. But um, but yeah, I, I, I'm really proud of where a lot of the folks in the movement have taken it. And, and so that's good. I don't think these that they're conflicting at all. Yeah, I um, you did a post a while back about how the fire movement is dead. Um, mm-hmm. And I've brought that up to a few people. I, I have to admit, I more skimmed it than read the whole thing. So I apologize. Um, but it was interesting because I was also talking to Grant Sabatier a while back and he said a very similar thing. And he, and it, it, it just hit me that both of you kind of said the same thing. And, and, uh, it's interesting. It's definitely changed, right? The community has changed and it's definitely gone very commercial, mm-hmm. um, which I think unfortunately is what happens with, with communities sometimes as they evolve. Yeah. And and I talk about that, that that is a normal thing that, you know, any movement that's successful is ultimately co-opted by folks looking to cash in in some way. And so we shouldn't act like this is some surprising development. (laughs) I think where I probably differ from Grant is the the desire to split it. You know, the folks who just want to talk about personal enrichment, that's fine. Mm. You guys go over here. (laughs) We'll go over here uh, because... I don't think those are fundamentally the same goal. And we've been talking for a long time like they are. And I think it mostly silences the people who want to not do a bunch of harm. And so uh, my goal in bringing that up was not to say, ah, you can't call it fire anymore, right. but to say instead, like, let's let's actually embrace the folks who want to have a positive impact. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And I definitely, that 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 spoke to me. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.